episode 74 of a hoops journey with the great alex devlin is brought to you by good lad clothing and parkside brewery we had to change how we recorded the episode about halfway through about 27 minutes through so if you guys are listening and you notice mitch's voice sounds a little bit different that's the reason why 74 episodes in let's go Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to A Hoops Journey. We have some Canadian, British Columbia, Simon Fraser royalty with us today. A gentleman who's been involved in the game for a long time, not only as a player, but as a coach. Rumor has it, spent some time coaching Terry Fox, which I want to dive into a little bit later on. Former All-American, a national team member, a member of Canada Basketball's Hall of Fame and Basketball BC Hall of Fame. People out in BC will know the name for sure and probably have spent time with this with this man, a great human being. We are super thrilled to have Mr. Alex Devlin on with us tonight. The live audience. Corbin doesn't mess around. How are you, sir? It's great to see your face. Really good, really good. Yeah, it's been a while since uh, yeah. we've, we've been uh, together here, but uh, you're still at St. Thomas More. Sure am. Yep. 18th year. Uh, Joe Thurman. Joe's actually retired now. Oh, good, good. Yeah, he had some heart issues and things like that, and so he took he took some time just to kind of get his medication right. Yeah. And. Just never came back. He's really enjoyed retirement. And uh, I saw him at Rich Goulet's memorial and looks great. He's listened to a few of the episodes that we've done and, and texts me every now and then. So he'll be thrilled to have you on. But yeah, Joe, great guy. Doing really well. Really happy that he's um, been able to kind of just move on and do what makes him happy, you know? Good. Well, I'm glad. Joe was on the team with Terry Fox. Get out of here. At that time, SFU was... Uh varsity and jv it was yep. before your time they used to have programs called jv <laughs> jvs were first two uh, two years if you weren't good enough to make uh, varsity and in those days you couldn't even play varsity in your first year i mean pete maravich had to sit out or play J- jv his first year lou alcindor uh kareem <laughs> abdul jabbar they all they all had to play their first year on a jv team mm-hmm. uh, so that was uh the team uh the, actually i'll just because we're talking about them. Yeah, uh, go for it. When, when Terry came up, uh, we used to run in the fall training programs. He'd come from uh, the, the, the old Terry Fox High School. And every day that we ran any kind of preseason training, he won the cross country. He won every <laughs> cross country. They'd run on the back hills of Simon Fraser up and down that mountain. And that kid would win every time. Uh, so in the end, Stan, uh, uh, at that time, Terry probably skill-wise wasn't wasn't there but Stan Stewart's and the head coach of varsity said there's no way we're not taking this guy because he's just it'd be embarrassing because he's he's won every one of our uh, preseason conditioning things so uh, we took him on the JV team and when he first started playing he was like 12th man uh, by the end of the year uh, just because of who he was and how hard he worked and competed he, he was sixth man had he come back the next year, I'm sure he would have been a starter. And then who knows if he'd ever made the varsity or not. But uh, with a week to go in the season, uh, we got a call. Stan called us and said that, uh, which was obviously a big shock, said that Terry's in hospital and tomorrow they're going to operate on him to remove his leg. Mm-hmm. So we all went up to see him that night. And it was, you know, just unbelievable because, like, yes, last week he was at practice and and tomorrow he's going to, face this life-altering surgery. So that was, uh, you know, that was sort of uh, hard to believe. But, uh, you know, that kid was, he asked for extension on all his courses. This was like, I guess, February or so. He asked for extensions like most people with that trauma in your life might have packed it in. (laughs) But he finishes his courses, and then he came back the next year and was our manager for the JVT. So uh, Just something different about him, hey? Oh, there, there's, there. Well, you know, at the time, you, you didn't recognize it, other than, of course, you know, his persistence, his dedication, his determination was so, you know, it was so, it was just so above the, the average athlete. You know, he wasn't the, the greatest athlete. He wasn't that big, and he wasn't that the quickest. But battle, like battle and battle and battle. And of course, we saw that as it, as he got into his marathon of hope, and now just how, how incredibly. Uh, you know, you look at that marathon of hope. He ran like 
marathons over three months every day with about three days off. I mean, I don't think any human's ever done that with both legs, let alone this kid on one. So, mm-hmm. and I, I remember he, uh, I don't know if you remember, but they had a big celebration in Toronto when it finally really started to catch fire in Ontario. The Marathon of Hope really picked up in Toronto yep. uh, when he got to Ontario. And they had this big celebration, 100,000 people. How many people went to their town center? And uh, and he was a great hockey fan. He loved hockey. He loved all sports, but he, he really loved hockey. And I remember uh, there was people like Bobby Orr, Daryl Sittler, all, all these guys had gone to this celebration just to just to meet him. And uh, but just the kid he was when he uh, when he talked about it, he said he said, "Coach," he said, "I got to meet Bobby Orr. I got to meet Daryl Sittler." And, and and I said, "But I think." They're the ones that feel fortunate to have met you. But that's just not his mindset. That just wasn't mm-hmm. the way he would think. He didn't think he was the focus. And the reason I think the marathon was so successful was because uh, because in the end, it wasn't about him. He, 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 he never believed it was about him. It was about helping. I think what happened was uh, after the operation, um, they didn't have a bed for him in the adult cancer ward, so they put him down in the in the in the children's mm-hmm. cancer ward, and that's when he saw what he'd never realized was going on in the world, that children were were, were sick with this disease, and uh, I remember he was telling us about how he had asked the nurse, "What what about this this guy? What about that little girl? What about that?" And the nurse would tell him, "No, not not going to make it. Not going to make it." Uh, an amazing, amazing guy, and then of course. He, you know, his marathon ended, but he came back home for the last winter. And then in the spring, um, he passed. And uh, all the basketball players got to go, or his team from the JVs got to go uh, to, the, to the service that was held in Port Coquillum. You know, uh, right there on Shaughnessy Street, right behind that little Catholic elementary school, there's a church. And that was the, that's where the service was held. It was all blocked off. All the roads were blocked off by RCMP. I think the prime minister and the premier and everybody had come. And it was televised. And of course, but we were up in the uh, choir, so we didn't get, <laughs> we didn't get prime time television. <laughs> I mean, what memories, though, and to be one of the few people that had the opportunity to work with and get to know him a little bit and build a little bit of a relationship, I'm sure, just in how you tell the stories, it's still special to you to this day. He was special when we we first got to know him, and then it just, like, was mind-blowing how, what he he actually did, what he accomplished. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, just beyond belief. And the thing was... If you sat in a room and you didn't know him, you talked to him. He, he was just, he was no different than anybody else. He was just a just an average guy with an extraordinary uh, drive in him. Mm-hmm. So. Amazing. There's one other. I'll tell you what other story. Um, Please he, do. Uh, Rick Hansen asked him because he read about him and asked him to come out and play for wheel ca- cable cars wheelchair basketball. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> Rick told us this story. I had the opportunity one year. I got to coach the cable cars and. Uh, get to know these guys so they're they're really they're real characters mm-hmm. but uh rick has said in this first practice he came out uh, in in wheelchair basketball depending on your disability you're given a number four if you're like from the neck down or three okay. whatever it is and of course the the, the least uh, would be the amputee because they're, they're functional except for the loss of one limb or the leg or whatever so anyhow they're in the, in this they're in their practice and they're going and um and somebody takes a shot. Well, in wheelchair, wheelchair basketball, blockouts is like uh, crash derby. Like when the shot goes up, everybody just on you know, defense, you'll just crash your wheelchair into the next one just to keep them <laughs> off the boards. Yeah. As Terry got jammed. <laughs> so Rick says he got jammed, but the rebound was close. So he hopped up and he hopped over and he grabbed the rebound. <laughs> <laughs> they all laughed at him. They all started yeah. laughing. He didn't know what was wrong. And yeah, yeah. Just out of his that, instinct, hey? explained to him that not everybody has that advantage. Like, yeah. some guys can't get out of the wheelchair. Right. But uh, that was funny. <laughs> That's awesome. And cool that we get to chat during September with, you know, obviously the Marathons of Hope coming up here to end the month. And we would invite people to get out, go for a walk you know, donate whatever they can do, volunteer and get a part of those things because Terry's legacy still, you know, carries weight through our country. And I'd love to see him get on the $5 bill and I and I will never personally try to ever let his legacy go because um, he's one of my true heroes for sure. And uh, thanks for sharing those stories. Those are awesome. Yeah, no, it was, it was, a, it was a great, great person and a great Canadian. 
And speaking of great people and Canadians, yourself, tell us about you and growing up and, you know, kind of childhood and, and how you sort of started to realize that basketball was something that you were really interested in. Uh, I was born in Edmonton. And I came from a family that my, my both my parents were from Ireland, Northern Ireland. They, they lived like 10 kilometers apart in Northern Ireland, but could never have married in Northern Ireland because one was orange and one was green. One was Protestant, one was Catholic. And in Northern <laughs> Ireland, that would have never happened. But two lonely immigrants meet in Edmonton, Alberta, get married. And then they have a start their family. After their seventh straight girl, after oh the seventh straight girl, the first boy was born, and that poor baby came into the world, and the whole case room ward, and everybody, maternity ward, they went crazy because Mrs. Devlin had her first boy. And, Aaron, i got to be honest, they tried to spoil him. All his life, they tried to spoil him because <laughs> he was the first boy. So he fought it as best he could. And then, and then, they, had th- then they had three more boys, and that was the family. So What? We had 11, yeah. Seven oh girls, my. four boys. Seven girls, Ooh. four boys. Seven in a row girls, and then the four boys. But uh, anyhow, I got into hockey because I didn't, you know, in Edmonton, everybody plays hockey. So I was playing, and we have outdoor rinks. Like, everything's outdoor at those days. So, uh, you know, it was pretty reasonable. Uh, you could afford to play. Then uh, after grade uh, seven, I finished my grade seven in Alberta. Then we moved out to B.C., with the four boys and my young, well, the youngest sister. And uh, when we got here, we lived in Burnaby, and I saw Richmond Park, Richmond Park at Burnaby, and I said, they have got, they've got a lacrosse box. But I didn't know what lacrosse was. I said, oh, great, we could play outdoor hockey here, too. <laughs> I thought the lacrosse box was outdoor rink. Well, that winter, we found out there was no, <laughs> there was no more uh, snow or anything. So that was the end of hockey. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't play hockey again until I was finished university, got back in hockey. But hockey gave me a good base. Uh, it's, it's similar to basketball, hockey, lacrosse. And, and uh, when I look back on it, I'd say the one thing that I did pick up, which I didn't even know at the time, was, was, was a vision. I could see pretty good things going on around me. Uh, I didn't play basketball until grade 10. I was in grade 10, and my uh, PE teacher was the basketball coach. And he told me, because we played in class, he said, yeah, you got to come up for basketball. I said, oh, I don't know. You know, I've never really played basketball. And he said, well, you got to come up basketball or I'm going to fail you in PE. Yeah. <laughs> Teachers could do that back then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I said, what? He says, you come out or I'm not going to pass you in PE. So I went over basketball and then uh, I, I played. And you know, I, I was a good enough athlete, but I didn't have any skills. Uh, when Did you I have soft hands from hockey a little bit? I think so. Yeah. I think, I, I, you know, and I could, I could get there. I knew, I knew if the shot was missing, I knew where to get. And I knew how to get there. And I could, if I was in close, I could score uh, mm-hmm. backward. No problem. <laughs> But after grade 10, I went to Burnaby Central, and I didn't even think about going out for the basketball team, except uh, we played an alumni game when I was still in Edmonds Junior High. And uh, when we played an alumni game, uh, one of the players from Burnaby Central, who was in grade 11, uh, when I got to Burnaby Central, he was now grade 12, and he said, why aren't you coming out for morning practices? I was, like, shocked. I said, what? He said, yeah, he said, basketball guys are practicing. You should come out in the morning. So I started to go out in the morning, and that kind of was the start of it. And then uh, in high school, I played uh, center. And then and when I went to SFU, I played one year at the, at the point, and then I played uh, uh, two years, three years at, at the small forward. And then when I got to the national team, I was the point guard. So mm-hmm. I realized from high school to, you, uh, to uh, the national team, the, the longer I played basketball, the shorter I became. <laughs> I went from center to forward to guard. Uh, so that was uh, how basketball went. Now, true or false, a gentleman by the name of Bill Disro might have been around Absolutely. Burnaby Central during your time. Yeah, Bill Disro. Uh, I owe a lot to Bill Disro. He uh, he's a very positive guy. It's no coincidence to me that he's you know he's, he's the all-time leading championships in BC High School because he empowers his players. You play mm-hmm. for Bill Disro, you you. You will feel good about yourself, and uh, and he will bring the best out of you. That's that's a, a tremendous talent he's got. So at Burnaby Central, he was just getting into coaching, and he helped with the with the varsity team. Bill Disbro had 
the only guy I know had subscription to Sports Illustrated. So he could read about all these basketball, college basketball teams. He used to tell us about, uh, you know, Marshall Thundering Herd, like just the name. Wow, what a name. And then all these basketball players and that. So we kind of got educated uh, around basketball. I owe a lot to Bill Israel. And then uh, he ends up going on and, and becoming a great coach. And, uh, mm-hmm. And I think he actually did. A, he wrote a letter for me in grade 12, which I had. I didn't have no way I had the confidence or I had the belief in myself because I was still my skills weren't great. But I, I, you know, I could I could play. He wrote a, a letter to me to Tate's Locke, who was the uh, South Carolina Gamecocks coach, I believe. Or, or, or it was South Carolina Gamecocks. I forget who the coach was. But anyways, they wrote back, said uh, he asked if he could get me a scholarship. And they wrote back and said, well, we, we, we couldn't give a scholarship sight unseen. You know, if he comes, tries out, makes the team, you'll get a scholarship. Well, that was like, that was just unbelievable to think, wow, a Canadian kid might, might get us a chance to go down there. But anyhow, it didn't, uh, it didn't materialize. But uh, uh, later on in, in the, in the um, one of the uh, training sessions we had for our national team, who was the guest coach? But Tate's Locke from South Carolina. And uh, me and Billy Robinson, he came up to us after practice and he said, uh, do you guys have any eligibility left? <laughs> and I thought, well, well, well we didn't. Well, I just graduated and Bill has just graduated a year before me or two years. And so, uh, but I thought that was kind of a, and I think that's an interesting point, Aaron, I'll tell you. Mm-hmm. I think at that time in, in high school basketball in Canada, we were behind. We, mm-hmm. we were behind uh, probably, you know, a year or two. Uh, if we had, if we had, um, like, a, a, at that time also, I don't think the coaching was was what it is, anywhere near what it is today. Uh, the technical coaching. I mean, we had great coaches who were motivators and, and that, but, but not the technical skills that uh, the kids can be exposed to so early today. Like, like, like if a kid wants to be a player, uh, that the blueprint's there, the blueprint's there for them. Uh, it, you know, it, it, it comes down to the end of the motivation and what motivates them. But that time, uh, we didn't have that. And uh, you know, I, I look at uh, at the guys like I played with one of the greatest players. I think I don't know if you ever. Do you ever hear of Billy Robinson? I have him on my list. To, I want you to tell me just how great he was. I, I've heard Billy stories, Robinson but is the greatest basketball player in Canada that nobody knows. He was phenomenal and at the time you didn't even know how good he was because because we, we were we were young we didn't know how good he was mm-hmm. but I'll, I'll tell you this i tell people this they don't believe me but i tell you billy robinson was the greatest shooter i have ever seen i would rank him with or ahead of steph curry he was a phenomenal shooter without a three-point line in that era we didn't have three-point line i was this i was a freshman and bill was a junior and one Sunday we were in the old East Gym at SFU, and he was he was uh, he played like he knew I was a freshman. He says, "Shoot till you miss." The other guy rebounds. Shoot till you miss. I said, "Okay." Well, I thought, "Well, that's a big deal." <laughs> you know, like you know, Billy Robinson's going to rebound for me. So yeah. he'd hit your couple or three, and then you'd miss yeah. one, and then he'd go out, to, and then he just started to get in a rhythm. And as he got in his rhythm, you know, then the next time he'd move out a little further, he'd move out a little further, move out a little further, and so this is what I. At the time, I had no idea. I just said, wow, this guy can really shoot. But I had no idea. It may, it may have been the most phenomenal shooting display in the history of mankind. <laughs> he backed out, passed where the three-point line would be today, halfway between the three-point line and the jump circle at center, halfway, about halfway between there and a little bit to the right. And he, 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 he found his rhythm. He found his stroke. And he hit. Cause I had nothing better to do but rebound and count and pass. I like to take some credit that I was throwing him great passes. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. But he hit <laughs> from there. From there. Halfway between the three-point line, although there was no three, but where it would be, the top of the key, and the, and the jump circle, and a little to the right, he hit 44. Damian Lillard couldn't. He can shoot that far, but could he hit yeah. 44? Stephen Curry can shoot that far. Could they hit 44 in a row? I don't think he could have ever done it again, but he did it that day. And at that day, I just thought, wow, that's amazing. But then when I look back on it now, I say, who could do that? That's wild. Thought, he shot the ball different than anybody you've ever seen. When he really said, Jay Triano will tell you this. He said, Jay, nobody put backspin on the ball like Billy Robinson put backspin on the ball. He had Popeye forearms. He just had, I don't know if it was from all his practice, but these forearms were like Popeye, big wrists. 
And when he followed through, it it had it was a gun. It was just like boom, the hardest follow through you ever seen with the most backspin you've ever seen. And they became lasers, like they just go. And he, uh, I asked him one time. I says, "Why the, why so much backspin?" Mm-hmm. And it was kind of a bizarre story. He said, "Well, my dad told me." That if you really, like dad was a baseball guy, and he said, if you really want to throw a good curve, you really got to snap it. You mm-hmm. really got to snap it, and then you can control it. And so that was it when he when he had practiced. And he he was, again, a, a self-made player. I mean, he might have had coaches along the way, but everything he learned was in his backyard, and his backyard was just an old barn with an old hoop and a dirt ground, it bounced. Like, it was just he didn't have pavement. He didn't have. And then as he got older, he was able to uh, find a key to the school gym and go in at nights into the school gym and get get his uh, his, his practice in and uh, prepare himself for all upcoming exams. Apparently, yeah, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He 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 was a phenomenal uh, talent. And, uh, wow, we we lost we lost him a couple years ago, but yeah, wow, rest in a, peace. What a player. That's amazing. We've had a few people mention his name, but I love to hear these stories. They're awesome. And for yourself, like you talked already about kind of just maybe a little bit of insecurity in high school and yourself. At what point did you realize, okay, like I can actually do this? Or did you walk on to SFU campus? Like talk about that process of actually getting there and, and being a part of the team and, and what clicked for you? Because how do you go from being uncomfortable in grade 11 to getting yourself to like an all-american level like it's an interesting process um and i and i like obviously there were some coaches with some vision who realized no no, you're not a center like you're you've got different skills and i know you'll be able to touch on all that so looking forward to hearing that yeah so after i left high school I, i was the center we had a real good high school team and probably the most talented high school team but we didn't play very good defense so we lost came third in the province and lost to okay and a semifinal or something. But uh, then when I went to f- first year at SFU, I, I didn't make the varsity team. At that time, you could make varsity as a freshman now when I okay. first went there. So I played, I started to play JV and I played JV till Christmas and then uh, uh, one of the varsity players flunked out. So I got to go uh, up to the varsity from Christmas on of my first freshman year. Then I had a real, fort- well, I guess fortuitous event uh, in my second year. Uh, the starting point guard, it was a guy from, uh, come from San Francisco, a guy named Elon Slauscher, had uh, sustained an injury to his somewhere in his stomach or area, muscular kind of problem. So he sat out the whole year. And when he set out the year, then I was able to become the starting point guard, and I got to play with Bill. Nobody knows Bill Robinson better than I, because I played for him with him two years in university and four years on the national team. So I, I saw that guy play more than anybody. Then uh, after that year, uh, I, I was the point guard. I still didn't have a lot of confidence, but I had, uh, I, you know, I was practicing more, and I was practicing on my skills more because I had to be able to handle the ball better. And then. Uh, and then uh, the next year, uh, we had two good guards, so they moved me to small forward. And small forward, Aaron, you may not know this, you may mm. not believe this, but I'm telling you, is the easiest position in the game of basketball. You don't have the pressure of bringing the ball up the floor. You get to, okay. you get to run off the bigs for screens. You just find it, you know. I just absolutely loved playing small forward because it was like, it was like the easiest position. You could lose your check. You could rub them. You could get and pop out, get the ball attacked. And then, and even when I played in the national team, there would be times uh, that uh, the Donahue would sub me, uh, sub in a guard for, uh, and move me up to forward. And, and when I played forward there, it was the easiest job. So <laughs> I found that the three, the slash kind of small forward position was, was the most fun uh, of the uh, any position in basketball. But uh, anyhow, uh, uh, I guess... No disrespect to all the small forwards out there, right? No disrespect. No, Just, you know. <laughs> no, no disrespect because you've got to be good to be a good small forward. So Fair enough. Uh, then uh, uh, then uh, I, uh, the last two years, I, I was certainly, you know, much different. Actually, the, the year, the second year when I went point guard, 
I really started to ball handle. I, I really practiced my ball handling. I run chair drills till, uh, you know, forever. And mm -hmm. uh, that really gave me a lot of confidence. And then I think from then on, I was a different player. I was a good defender. I always was a good defender. Even in high school, I could play defense. But, but the offense, uh, and not so much scoring, but just handling the ball. And then I could see the game. So I, I found it always, uh, you know, I always found much more satisfaction when you make that great play where you can draw the whole defense to you and you can hit somebody and they're uncontested wide open. Like that to me was as good as it gets because you had to fool everybody. You had to suck them in. You had to draw them in, whatever. And, and, and now when I look at players, uh, I always say this. I say, you can go into a gym and watch a player play basketball. And in five minutes, you'll know what kind of, uh, what kind of a player you got here. And that's uh, one thing that defines them is the decision-making a player makes from the perimeter to the basket. You know players, from the moment they got the ball in perimeter, they're going to the hoop and they're going to shoot it. doesn't matter if they have to pump, triple pump, step under, hook it. They're going to throw it because that's, <laughs> that's their modus operandi. They go to the hoop, they're going to shoot it. And then you got other players that can kind of go in, sometimes, and they're always looking to pass. And then you find the player who knows when to pass and knows when to shoot. Then you got a player. When you, when you, when you can watch a player from perimeter in and the decision making process, uh, then I think then, uh, you can say that, you know, what you got. I think it really clearly defines a player, the decision making they make. You can still have good players at all positions, but watch them going from the perimeter to the hoop and, and see if they make good decisions. Uh, if they do, I think you got a chance for a real special player got a crazy basketball mind do you feel like you know you talked about having that vision sort of basketball became natural because you kind of could see ahead and sort of see what was happening but allowing to yourself or playing all those positions did that lead to a little bit more success do you feel like at when you be, when you decided to coach the game because you had played a lot of positions and you had an understanding or did you I, not even make that connection at all i don't know if i made did you just feel like you always had know, a good feel you know, it's like, like like this is how you did it yeah. uh, you, you know Okay, we're playing a game in uh, Oregon against uh, George Fox University. And uh, we knew uh, from the scouting report, you knew who you were guarding and we knew uh, what they liked to do and, and so on and so forth. So uh, that night, that afternoon, we had, uh, we take a nap before the game, after lunch, and before we go to the game. So I was visualizing, visualizing, visualizing this one particular play where the guy comes off a screen, runs to the wing position, and then they enter the ball from the top. I just visualized a bunch of different things. And then I saw it in the game. And I saw it so so clearly and so early that when I went to shoot it, I ran past the passing lane. I had to reach backwards to grab the ball, uh, the pass, because I had overran it. That's how I jumped it. And then I thought, and then I got a breakaway layup. So how come I can't visualize like this all the time? Like, why, how do you make this happen more? Mm -hmm. Because it was so... It was so slow. Like the ball was coming. I could see the rotation on the ball. It was like slow motion. It was just turning and turning. And I had to wait and wait for it because uh, I visualized this thing. So, so I said, man, I wish I could figure out uh, how you could utilize that, that, that ability to visualize in, in, uh, in sports and athletics. Cause it's, um, it's, it's for real. Yes. I know. Cause it, 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 you know, and it happened just, try to get it to happen a lot it's the challenge i guess mm -hmm. the the visualization is huge i'm reading a book called the playmakers oh my gosh i should know the name but it is it's a lot of that it's a lot it's 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 basically about the brain and sport and how it works it's quite interesting so um you know i, I don't know if you ever had any of that sort of training or dealt with that but we we did it a few times when i was in college and it was always intriguing right i think but i think it takes buy-in and it's like anything else just a lot of repetition and practice you know especially when you're using your mind to picture something it's not always perfect right you you, you screw it up and then it, you know you get but you have to continue to work at it so but it is an interesting component yeah. so how do you coach uh kids to be uh to, to see the game better how do you like i i think the most important thing for players is if they can see the game. I take that over skill. I take that over uh, anything. If you can see and read the game, mm -hmm. that that puts you on another level because most people just catch and react, just you know, catch the ball and then think, "What am I going to do?" Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I, I, I 
I have never, I think it becomes an individual thing, but I've often thought like what you're talking about, the book you're reading, I often, uh, you know, there might be something like the way kids can play computer games now, mm. if you had games that really work in their peripheral vision and they're having to see that, then uh, maybe that would transfer. Maybe, mm-hmm. maybe they can get And when they step on the court, they can see more. I, I used to tell my kids this, I said, when you walk down the hallway, when you walk down the hallway, every time you're walking down the hall in school, every time you sit in that class, if you're looking at the teacher, you see what all these guys are doing on your periphery. You see if that guy moves, you see if, 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 if you know, he picks up his pen or when you're walking down the hall, you walk down the hall and you don't look at any of the side people, like in your direct vision. You just look at them and then you say, oh, hi, Charlie, or hi, whatever they mm-hmm. But that was sort of to get them to try and practice to see vision. But I never found a... a, a, a a great solution where, where I could make kids that couldn't see mm-hmm. other than like repetition, you know, they could learn two on one. There's another guy there. So yeah. I got to kind of look, you, you know, because you, you've got players, you've had players, I'm sure you, maybe in your career where you walk into a gym and when you go watch a game and there's a kid that makes a play that you didn't see coming, you say, wow, mm-hmm. well, that kid's awesome. I didn't even see that. Mm-hmm. And, that's somebody that's got special, uh, special vision. And I, that's one of the things that uh, Bill Disbrow always used to talk about. I don't know if this would help trigger me, but I, I think I got some of it in hockey. But Bill used to talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. He used to talk about guys that could see the thing. And, of course, then you want to see, too. Right? Yeah. Because that sounded like such a good thing. So I think that for coaches to keep to keep pushing that and, and, and to mention it when they make a great play, tell them what a great yeah. play that was. What a great, how did you see him? Yeah. How did that happen? And then, uh, then they feel good. Yeah, they might. You make a good point, and it's interesting you say that because you know someone who was kind of a six four sort of tweener as a player, right? I found that I really relied on a lot of my instincts too, and had many coaches say, "Well, you know, you kind of see things that." other people don't. And I've always wondered what it was. I wondered, I always felt like playing, you know, you mentioned hockey. I always felt like baseball where it can be a boring game, but like if I'm on second and I know there's two people out and if the ball gets hit in a certain spot, what my job is in it. Cause you're always thinking ahead. So I think that kind of yeah. sort of intrinsically yeah. sort of made me think differently, but it is it's been one of the biggest barriers as a coach is to, uh, and you can't get frustrated when a kid doesn't see what you're trying. But I also think, you know, and, and I'm sure you did the same, like playing against bigger, playing against faster, playing against stronger, because your window of opportunity is that much smaller. So, you know, if, if I've got a six, eight guy in the post and he's being guarded by a six, 10 guy, my window's pretty small. So I've got to figure out where to throw that ball. But if I just play against everybody that's the same or lesser than me, everything comes pretty easy, you know, and, and it, it's a huge thing. And, I, and it's something I'm always constantly trying to figure out how to get kids to yeah. see the game a little bit in a different manner. It's a, it's a huge thing. Yeah, yeah. It, it is. And I think, I think it's, it's, it's the greatest skill. If the kid can have vision, uh, take that. I but, agree. Uh, here's, here's a question. Hmm. Why is it as hard as it, you know, we struggle to find the answer, how to coach kids in this, but why is it that many, many times a child of a coach has the vision you'll see sons, coaches, daughters, and they've got the vision. And you say, well, they must be talking to them all the time about it, you know, where it's always there. And eventually it becomes part of who they are, the part of how they play. Because I've seen many coaches, kids who can see the game pretty well. They understand it. They see the game. Remember that guy that came out of Blaine, Washington? I don't know if you remember. He played pro for a year. Luke Rittenauer? Yeah, Luke Rittenauer. Yeah. Like that, that kid. That kid had it. I mean, he could see the game. Oh, big time. Then, uh, you know, you look at uh, I, I, when I look back. Two regrets in basketball. One, one would be that in, in the career, I never, I had motivational coaches. I had great inspirational coaches, but technically the game wasn't there in, in my era. It, it, we didn't have technical, real strong technical. I think the first really strong technical coach that I ever came across was Ken Shields. Mm. Really started to break the game down before that. So I look at it, you know, the guy like Billy Robinson, how good could he have been? With 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 a technical coach, mm-hmm. really could have refined his game. Bill learned his game and played it. The reason Bill and I got along so well was because he trusted me. Mm-hmm. I knew to get the ball back to him because he was the best <laughs> shooter. And he would say to me, he would say, to, "I just got." I was at SFU one time, and we came down on a break, and he was open on the wing, and I gave it to one of our big guys. He went in for a lap, missed it, mm-hmm. and then he 
But he says, Alex, he says, think about this. Me open at 20 or him for a layup. What do you like? <laughs> so from then on, it was no question. I'd get in the bill. <laughs> so so he trusted me and would give me the ball. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, we, we'd, we'd work together. Yeah. But uh, maybe it's not the coaches necessarily right talking so much to their son or daughter, but also just being around that sport and kind of soaking it all in. And, all you know, time. yeah, you know, it's just sort of going in through osmosis a little bit in some way. And then, yeah, and then throw in the conversations, right? It is an interesting thing for sure. Like, I just find it super intriguing and you're really avoiding talking about yourself a lot, which I can respect. I appreciate that. But uh, talk about that time with the national team, the Olympics, like that has to be a pretty special time in your life and some pretty fond memories. Well, yeah, it, it, you know, I, I'm thinking, when's the next time Canada is ever going to host a summer Olympics? Probably never because of cost prohibitive. So <laughs> we were the only group that got to march into the Olympic summer games in your own home country. So that, that was really a special time. Um, my, my experience in the national program, so, uh, in 1972, uh, it was Donahue's first year, they had a tryout camp at Courtney. And, uh, and we'd sleep on the stage and sleep in the classrooms. And everybody from all across Canada came to this tryout camp. And then they picked the team. And uh, I made the team. And the, mo- the, the next morning... Uh, so you tell me you brought your own sleeping bag? Uh, no, they had blankets and stuff. They had caught. they had them it it was to qualify for the 72 munich olympics that was that was what this team was going to do it was donahue's first year so i made the team the next morning when i woke up went to get out of bed i couldn't bend my knee and that was the start of my knee problems uh i ended up over the next three years uh three surgeries and in those days aaron believe me it was brutal it wasn't like the three little acupuncture like little holes things they they cut you you were eight weeks in recovery. That was for cartilage. And uh, I, ha- I had originally had a cyst on my cartilage that I couldn't go to the Olymp- That's one of my great regrets. I didn't get to try play with that team in 72. That's team in 72 misqualifying by losing to Spain by five points. Mm. And of course, player, you know, if you'd have been there, they might not have lost by five points and you might have been in the Munich Olympics, but uh, it wasn't meant to be. So then uh, the next year, I, I wasn't going to go to the national camp because I had to have a second surgery at the end of my senior year at SFU. And then, uh, but Donnie, who wanted me to come, so I went. And uh, But I struggled. I struggled with my confidence. I struggled, like, I, you know, I was getting back physically, but it wasn't, uh, you know, you, got, you kind of got to, everybody has to find their, their path for confidence, right? You, you know, some people... You can play in some programs and the coaches can do it for you. The coach can give you the confidence, make you think uh, you're even better than you are. Other ones, smarter, I don't know, guys, you have to find, you know, whatever it takes, a good game, good play, something triggers, and then you start to feel better about your game. And uh, and for me, uh, uh, Donahue kept me on the team in 73 after my uh, second knee operation, but uh, we went on tour. And, and I'll, I'll say this, Jack Donahue uh, turned basketball around in Canada. Mm-hmm. He turned it around because he did, I think, uh, two things. Well, we played, we played everywhere. We played like three, four months on the road. We became absolute road warriors. In our first year, I remember we played uh, Cuba, who in 1968 had won the bronze medal in Mexico. They were a good basketball team. We played them in Cuba with Fidel Castro in the stands. And they kicked us by about 25 or 30 points the next year. But we kept touring. We just kept going. And, oh, man, we played so many games on the road. I mean, talk about uh, homesick. Then uh, then we played them the next year in the World Championships in Puerto Rico. And we lost in overtime. I think it was overtime or we lost on the buzzer. And then the next time we played them, we beat them. And we never lost them again. We never lost them in Montreal, we played them in Montreal, we beat them again. So that was sort of the progression. And it came because I would say we played the competition. The other thing I learned from uh, from Jack Donahue was this. When the game is on the line, you have your best players on the floor. There's no messing around. There's no, you know, even foul problems. You know, If the game is still a game and you got a chance, then he would play his best players. Actually, when I was healthy in 74, it was my best year. Uh, he he had a lot of confidence in me because I, I didn't come out. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I rarely come out when everybody else would get pissed off because they'd miss, take too many shots or whatever. But uh, I was pretty good. And 
So that's kind of uh, uh, what happened. And then up to Montreal uh, in 19, uh, the best game I probably played was in the world championship. We were in Puerto Rico. We were playing Yugoslavia. It was the uh, defending world champions from two years earlier, Yugoslavia. They had Krasimir Kosik from Brigham Young and they had all these big Yugoslavs. Anyways, and Billy Robinson's wife had got hurt, so he had to go home and left, left Puerto Rico. And we, we had made it through the qualification round. We were now in the final eight, and, and we were trying to go for placement. We ended up, we, we were very competitive. Anyhow, we had Yugoslavia. We had them with less than a minute to go. We have the lead, 101 to 199, whatever it was. And I, I've, this is, I played my best game, I think, in my whole career. And uh, we got them. And in those days, the FIBA rule was down the stretch, if you get fouled, you can go to the foul line, shoot your two free throws, or you can take it out of bounds. Your choice. So we had to lead. We're taking it out of bounds. Mm-hmm. We're taking it. Out of we got Yugoslavia. There's less than a minute to go. We're going to beat these guys, and we're going to shock the basketball world. So the inbound the ball, I got it. I drove towards the middle of the lane, at top of the key, and then they double teamed me because the time was right. You had to get the ball. So I, I, I sort of threw a hook pass to one of our forwards. I won't mention his name, but I haven't forgiven him this day. He catches the ball in the mid block and jumped up like all in one caught it jumped up off the backboard over the over the square missed the hoop completely they rebound came down scored we lost in overtime so uh, i we had the world champions uh, and we were nothing we were nobody like who's canada at that time so um that that is uh, the game that um, we lost it but it, it was probably the best game i think i ever had played in And then uh, I came back in 75 and I, I uh, no, yeah, it was 75. I hurt my knee again. It kind of, so I had to go for a third operation. I got back in time for the Olympics, but I, was, I wasn't the same player. That was hard to do. Uh, that, that, I mean, as great as the Olympics was, it was also really hard because uh, I, I used to be the starting point guard running the show. And here I was on the bench for most of it. That, that, was, uh, that was hard mentally because... Dreamed for four years about this moment, this time. I'll tell you, I didn't tell you this story, but Billy Robinson and uh, three of the guys like Donahue, I think did them a favor and he he kind of wanted to give them some PR. So at that time, ABA was starting up and the Buffalo Buffalo Braves, Buffalo Braves were holding their trial camp and they had the three point line. So I thought Bill's got a real shot at this. The only problem was Bill is about five, nine, you know, he, he was, he wasn't real big by ABA standards even. So they went down, they tried out, there's three of our guys from a national team. And I'm not sure Donnie, who didn't say, just, you know, like them, send them back because I need them. So uh, anyhow, uh, Bill uh, said he had a pretty good camp, but they uh, he came back and along with that. And so we were talking about it. And he said, uh, I said, yeah, any good players? They said, oh, yeah, there are some real good players. He said, there was one guy. He said uh, the guy took a shot from the baseline and he was on the other side of the hoop. And then the ball hit the front rim and popped straight up. But this guy jumped from the other side of the hoop, grabbed it, brought it back, and dumped it. I said, holy cow, I must be a heck of an athlete. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I said, well, what was his name? I said, he, I don't know what his name was. He said, they called him, they called him Dr. J. <laughs> so so I, he, he became a famous player. Yeah, he was decent. Yep. He was decent. Yeah. The best, the best one I think we ever played against, uh, the best player, uh, we played against guys like uh, Marvin Barnes, Quinn Buckner, John Lucas, uh, Phil Ford, and uh, Scott May. Uh, who else was there? Uh, oh, a bunch of them. I can't remember. Uh, uh, David Thompson. Oh, yeah. David Thompson was Skywalker. He was one of the first Skywalkers. Oh, yeah. That, uh, he, was, he, he, was a, he was a really good athlete. Was he part of the... By Slamma Jamma? No. no, no. I think he's out of uh, Carolina. Maybe not, not maybe not North Carolina, but NC State. Uh, maybe I'm not sure. Okay. Maybe NC State. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But he he was there. wow. He was a talented guy. But then I think he got hurt too. Mm-hmm. You know, who, you talk about like you asked me about all time greats. My all time great coach. This is really uh, uh, easy. John Wooden. John Wooden had something that was just special, and his break the game down and, and to reach people you know you know in coaching so, three things teams do they achieve to their level they underachieve or they overachieve 
And you as a coach, at the end of every year, there's nothing else. You can analyze it, you study it, you think, geez, but did we overachieve? Did we underachieve? Did we play to our level? Mm-hmm. And Wooden had the ability, as, as you know, Bill Disborough, even in his own way, his teams would always play to their level or above. Wooden would be my all-time great coach. I thought the all-time great center, and I, I, I argued just because he won 11 championships, Bill Russell. Bill Russell was, uh, there was something that guy did that was phenomenal. Like the, the, the way he could control the game. He was a six foot nine with seven foot four arm span. Mm-hmm. I block every shot, but you don't know which one I'm coming after. And uh, <laughs> you get it do you think he's the greatest basketball player of all time? Well, it, it depends on your definition of basketball player. Okay. You know, athlete, he's obviously a good athlete, but so was Will Chamberlain. I mean, the guy scored 100 points in a game. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember that. You were, well, you, you were around. Will Chamberlain was being dumped all over because he scores 100 points, 50 points a game for a whole NBA season, 50, 50 points a game. So everybody dumped on him for, uh, you know, being selfish and all that. You know, the next year he went out, led the league in assists. Check it out. For real? It was unbelievable. He's unbelievable. But he was just a fantastic athlete. But um, but something in his game wasn't quite right. Like, you know, the, the great players make those around them better. The great players have the ability to make those around them better. Sometimes scorers, like I think Jordan learned that. I, I, I think Jordan learned how to, you know, wait yeah. until they needed. I, I also, I think Jordan and LeBron, I don't see much between them because uh, to me, like Jordan won six, but LeBron, his game has evolved. His game has really evolved. He, he, he is a smart basketball player who got smarter every year. So I, I don't know what it could between them. And for me, they, uh, you know, a great player that never, I don't, I, I don't know why, maybe drugs got into it or alcohol. I don't know what caused it, but Pete Maravich was an unbelievable player. In college, this guy, without a three-point line, averaged 44.2 points a game in three seasons because he had to play freshman uh, freshman ball. But that's a record. I don't know who's going to beat that. Who, who is going to beat that? But but in his pro career, he just didn't, you know, it didn't happen for him. But then they found out that the guy had a major heart defect and had played his whole career with a major heart defect. Still dropped 44 a game. Now, we're in. We're, yeah. 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 We're into the fun questions here, so it's a heated debate on this. How do you feel about ketchup on macaroni? Uh, I like the cheese. I just stick with the cheese. Yeah, no ketchup needed, right? No ketchup. No, I, I use ketchup on eggs. Yeah, okay. That's acceptable. Yeah, we'll, yeah, let, we'll let you pass on, there. Uh, on scrambled eggs. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> do you like music? Oh, uh, Aaron, you're asking the wrong guy. You're asking the right guy. Okay. My generation, my generation was raised in the advent rock and roll to today. Kids are born, this this is what happens. Kids are born and from the day they're born to whatever age they're at, they think that's when music started. (laughs) They think music started after I was born. They have no no ability to relate to it. It's so true. I can play (laughs) that that came from the 50s that are unbelievable songs. You know, and uh, but the kids have never heard them. I've got this group chat with a, gr- a group of 2012 guys that we've just stayed connected. Some have coached, and they always give me a hard time. You know, I like hip hop, and I just you know I try to listen to everything they do, but I'm like, you don't even bother listening to what I like. Come on, what's your problem here? You know what I mean? Like, and I said, and they give me, I say, listen, you'll be you'll be sounding like me in 2025 <laughs> years. So get off me, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's so true, but but. You know, sometimes you'll see where a kid or a, a, an offspring, the parents played the music, so the kid goes back and hears True. it, and he, he raises it. He says, wow, that, I didn't, wow, what music? You go read the comments in some of those uh, YouTube uh, videos on, on music. Yeah. But we we came from chamber music, or whatever you want to call it, to the, the early rock and roll, to the, the, to, to the British invasion, to the heavy rock and roll, to the whatever else has come since then. I like music today. They're still, but, but I, I'm sort of selective. I don't like, I don't a rap. I never, except for a little, a couple of Eminem songs that, that kind of had music and, and rap mixed yes. together. Okay, so but they're straight rap. So let's get to it then. You get to pick one concert. You got the best seat in the house. You can take whoever you want. That artist is dead or alive right now. Doesn't matter. Who are you going to see? Wow, I, I would say uh, the Beatles. 
Did you get a chance to see them? No. No, only on uh, Circuit TV. I saw Roy Orbison. Yeah. And he was unbelievable. Roy Orbison was unbelievable. What a voice. Yeah. Uh, the Beatles, hey? But the Beatles, uh, I only saw in closed circuit because my sister made me go with her because she wanted to watch it. And so we went to the forum and watched it. But uh, what they did in seven years and how their music transitioned from, you know, whether early music to the, their white album to the head, uh, Sergeant Pepper, like that's a, a unbelievable talent. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, another great group was the Bee Gees. They, they last, they had hit songs in over four or five de- decades. And I remember hearing, like, this is the talent we lose because we play basketball. We never had this. <laughs> we could only put on our earphones and listen. Yeah. But uh, they, they were going to a recording studio. You know Jive Talking? Mm-hmm. Way starts the entry to Jive Talking? You know how they wrote that? Mm-hmm. They're going to a recording studio in Pawtucket, Kentucky, uh, Massachusetts or somewhere, and they go over one of these old, old wooden bridges. And when the tires went over the wood, it went... So when he got to the got to the recording studio, he sits down and he starts to recreate. Like, how do you do that from here to here and recreate that sound? That was Jive Talk. That's how we got into Jive Talk. It's unbelievable. That is unbelievable. I'll tell you another talent story that uh, taught me humility. We're playing on the national team and we're flying from Spain to wherever we're going to go next, to Italy or something. And it's an early morning flight. And for some reason, I'm on the window. Billy Robinson, my buddy, is on the aisle seat. And this distinguished-looking gentleman in a suit is sitting in the middle. And, of course, when you're like 19 or 20 and you're traveling the world and you're a national team, you think, you know, you think, wow, we're really important. <laughs> like, wow, this is something. And so you're kind of like uh, loud and we're, we're on the plane. We're, we're all over. This, you know, all the players are sitting all over. So we're yapping at each other. We're yelling. Everybody else in the plane's kind of not saying much because... Who are these guys? And we're kind of, uh, you know, sowing our oats and feeling pretty good about ourselves. And so the flight goes on and things kind of quiet down. So uh, then I, uh, I said anything this gentleman. So then I started, uh, I don't know, I turned and I asked him, I said, oh, you know, how are you doing or something? And then he, uh, I started talking to him. And he, uh, I asked him, I said, oh, so uh, what work do you do? He says, oh, I'm in the medical profession. I said, oh, medical profession. I said, like pharmaceuticals, you sell. He said, well, no, actually, uh, I'm a doctor. I said, oh, you know, I said, wow, like a family practice doctor? And he said, no, I'm a thoracic cardiac surgeon. <laughs> you know, and, and then he's the most humble guy. Like he didn't, he didn't, you know, we're the arrogant guys. We're young and arrogant thinking we're, so here is this guy. And what he does, his specialty is he operates in children's with heart defects, mm-hmm. fixes holes in hearts. And, that. and I'm telling you, Aaron, I looked at his hands and I thought, my God, those hands can save lives. I looked at my hands. I said, I can dribble. <laughs> I can, I can pass, drop the assist, yeah. but I, I can't, I can't do what he can do. Mm-hmm. And, I, and after that, I, I learned my lesson. Uh, we think we're really important because we play a sport. So I learned this. It's not about, uh, you know, basketball isn't, what you do it's just what you do it's not who you are mm-hmm. too many people involved in something and they get good at it even even rock singers or i don't care if you're a football star and it's about well i i they become identified as that thing so if you're identifying yourself as a basketball player then you become a reflection of your last performance you had a lousy game you don't feel good about yourself mm-hmm. you had a great game, man you're all world for the next two days because wow i had a great game and and that and that is so so that's so backwards uh, I, I think basketball or whatever your skill set is, is what you do. It's not who you are. Mm-hmm. Who you are mm-hmm. is so much more important than uh, than what you do uh, and, and whether you're good at it or not. doesn't matter. I love that. Uh, I, I, uh, I learned this from him, too. His name was Rob, Rob Stewart, and he played at SFU, and he's six or seven. He had a few shots at the national team. He was, he was a pretty good player. And uh, one time we were in Toronto, and he lived in Mississauga, so we stayed at his house. And uh, I'd known him for two or three years. And we go downstairs uh, in his rumpus room, and uh, there's a piano there. And I said, oh, Rob. I said, who, who, who's piano? He says, oh, that's, you know, it's the piano. I said, do you play? He said, yeah, I play. Well. I said, oh, play. I, I had no idea. I've been with this guy at SVU for three years playing basketball. I had no idea. He sits down and plays the piano beautifully. Mm-hmm. So you underestimate. You think you know somebody. You think, you know, you, you, you slot him into this slot. Oh, yeah, Rob's a pretty good basketball player. Da, da, da. He, you know, he's got skills and talents. We have no idea. Yeah. So and his, that's why his, 
Stop me. Yeah, and it, and then it translate as a teacher and coach too, right? Because it just reminds you to ask meaningful questions, you know. And and the more that you know about the people that whether they're your teammate or you're they're in your class or that you coach, the more that you know, the more understanding you have where they're coming from, and then it's a, you're easier to to connect with them, right? If you just if you never yeah. get to know someone and just say, okay, I'm Coach uh, Devil, and this is the way it's going to be. Right. I mean, kids, kids, especially today, don't they don't respond to that. They they need some connection. They need to see some value in, in what you bring. So such a great point. Uh, I, I, would, I would ask you this. Mm-hmm. How long does it take you if you were to play, uh, you, you go to a different gym, play with for a different coach or a summer team or whatever. How long does it take you to figure out whether that coach is there for you or he's there for other reasons? Minutes minutes yeah any player can figure it out they know mm-hmm. right away what guy's coming from mm-hmm. or this girl and uh that's why i think in coaching the best coaches will be the ones that that, that can do as you say can make that connection yeah. can, I, you know the, the biggest regret i'll always have in coaching is is the players that i couldn't get players that had potential mm. that i couldn't draw it out for whatever reason for whatever reason um, I, I had one kid, well, like we were in IB school at Port Moody, yep. and 50% of the school is IB. And one year, the, the best basketball player in the school was a grade 11 Korean kid. He was he was the best player. And uh, his dad wouldn't let him play basketball. So we called in, and I asked the principal, we had a meeting with the dad, could he play basketball? And the dad said, no, hmm. no, he's got to studies. And I thought, wow, like, like, Kids, even IB kids, they need balance. Like you need something, you know. And this kid loved to play. Mm-hmm. He's going to regret it. And then, and then one time, I had a girl. Uh, I was coaching the girls' team, and this girl um, had a lot of potential. She really had a lot of potential, and but I couldn't, I couldn't get it. I couldn't get it. Uh, part of the problem was she had a, a a year older cousin who played in North Vancouver. And the, the, the year older cousin was quite a, a good player, like a well-known player, one of the better players in the province. And I think, I don't know, but I think that sometimes the parents were afraid to because of failure, right? If, if, if she, as hard as she can to become as good as she can, and she's not as good as her cousin, then maybe that's a failure. But she could have been better. I, I honestly, in my heart, she could have been a better player but the, but the setting wasn't right. I don't think I don't know if it was the parents or her mindset. To, you know, and and when you when you coach athletes, like how many of your kids have the dream? Really, really have the dream. Everybody wants to be. I want to be an NBA player. Mm. But how many have the dream? And uh, you know, you, you you tell me what I have to do, coach, and I'm going to do it. Like it's still rare. I don't I don't see that. Uh, everywhere yeah few and far between for sure um just a few more questions before uh, we let you go one's really important this one then i know you've probably been thinking about it for a week now since we've been texting but what's your favorite bag of chips ah my favorite bag of chips i would probably go with doritos like the red bag the nacho cheese the red, yeah the, the red, the red. okay the red, right. yeah richie chambers yeah. just said just salted like come on man <laughs> salted plain lace. Well, he, like, he likes to keep it simple. Yeah. He likes to keep it simple. Yeah, right, Richie Chambers. Um, who have been some of the most important people in your life, Coach? Oh, without question, uh, my mother. Mm. Um, she taught me. Uh, you know, she only got a, I think about a grade eight education, but uh, taught me more about life and 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 relationships and everybody's mother. I mean, but. Eleven children, and I never once saw her slap a kid, and I never once saw her yell at. I heard her yell at a kid. Hmm. She uh, she's amazing, uh, amazing woman, and uh, she survived eleven kids. <laughs> Holy smokes, that alone! And then, and then, of course, my you know my my oh, like all your coaches have influence on you. John Kutnikoff at, at, at uh, Simon Fraser was a great man, a great a great coach. You you, you uh, don't know because you're too young, but uh, when the SFU, uh, they came out in about 65, and when they came out, they were they were like the enemy. They were like, oh my God, SFU, scholarships. Oh, scholarships. Yeah. And the CIS, and, and especially UBC, because UBC was, uh, you know, this one of the established powers of Dr. Mullins program, and, and uh, at, at SFU, uh, we were the rebels, and I was in the second flight. I started in 69, but... Um, they used to play. I don't know if you know this. But they used to play uh, a, a, 
team every year, uh, SMUS in basketball mm. at, at the Pacific Coliseum. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah, Pacific Coliseum. Once had about, I don't know, maybe ten or 12,000 people out of the game. And then, uh, and we had a great rivalry, uh, but I think they hated us. We didn't hate but we, we, uh, you know, we, we thought we were good. And so that's coming. You, you have to think you're good. So uh, I remember this, 1972, they had a really good uh, player named Ron Thorson, really good player. And uh, they won the national championship CIS. I think it's their last championship, maybe. And that year, they reinstituted their um, tournament at the start of the season. And they invited us, which was kind of a surprise, but they invited SMU. So they put us up against Lakehead. Lakehead at that time was like uh, heavily Americans. Like they had a lot of Americans. Jerry Hemmings coaching? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he was Brandon. He was Brandon. Yeah, yeah. He started at Lakehead first, and then he went to Brandon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. and he might have, it might have yeah. been him. Yeah. I played for him. I went to Brandon. Ah, there you yeah, go. Yeah. And then, uh, so we played them and uh, we beat them. So we meet, we meet uh, UBC in their own tournament and their own tournament. And then uh, we beat them. And then we beat them Coliseum or in the Pacific, yeah, Pacific Coliseum. So that year, we like to tell them they were the number one program in Canada, but the number two in the lower mainland. Oof. Oh, they they hate to hear that, but you know. And then the next year they fixed us because they brought in Portland State for the first game. Oh, so Portland State Division <laughs> Two school, but we beat them. Well, it's funny because what they, they called it the Buchanan Cup, and uh, yeah, it's actually coming back. Did you know that? No, that's good. So, I, so both Coach Hansons have committed. Yeah, so it'll be November twentieth. Um, they're going to play wow, each other. They're going to get the rivalry going again, which will be fun. So. Where are they going to play? Good question. I'm looking. Neutral? I'm looking right now. It will be at SFU, November twentieth. Wow! Yeah, so they're wow, they're going to bring it back. So you know, I they should have it. I mean, they, you know, oh, it's so fun. Okay. It was it was a great time. Me, they had the football and the basketball, and it created some you know interprovincial rivalry, and it was what it was about, right? So I, it was fun time. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. No, that's great. Super appreciative of your time, and it's great to reconnect with you and see you're doing well. Kind of touched on it a little bit, a little bit, but um, we always ask our guests if you could do it all again, you would what? I could do it all again. Well, if 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 there was any way, like like medical uh, science today is so much better than during our time. Mm-hmm. So if I could do anything again, it'd be to uh, be able to play without the knee problem. I mean, if there was any way to have circumvented that or, or avoided that, then. Uh, because there's always that thing that maybe I could have, how good could I have been? Like, yep. you know, I, I know how far I got, but what if, what if I had been, you know, healthy? And so that, that that's, it. but that's life. So what do you do? You know, Bobby had had a hell of a career and then had to leave it early because of his knees. And it's just the way it goes. But, uh, well, today that would be my- well, what do you do? You, uh, you get your mind right and you go into coaching and teaching and you impact thousands of people's lives. That's what you do for 40 years. Right. So that's what you do. You know what I mean? So I, you know, I think, that, yeah, yeah. and you'll never say it, but you, that's what you've been doing. And that's why we wanted to have you on your, on the show here and, and share your story. So, and I know that the health and when you're talking, you could kind of see the frustration still in you kind of just that wonder, right. The body starts to break down and it, it's a little bit unfair, but uh you you manage to stay tough and find a way to still be part of the game and impact people's lives and i think that says a, a lot about you and who you are well thank you i appreciate the kind sentiments but i think all coaches um all coaches deserve the credit I mean, they, they're the ones working with the kids and putting in the time and um and it, it's a great game mm-hmm. it is a beautiful game any last thoughts before we let you go last thoughts um i would say i'll leave you with this I think the most important skill for a player is seeing the game. Then I'd say the next most important skill, uh, they don't believe this, but I say if you're not in shape, it doesn't matter how skilled you are, you're going to lose your skill as you fatigue. You're going to, you're going to miss the shot, you're going to lose the ball, you're not going to catch it the same. You've got to be in shape. And then uh, Stephen Curry's taught us this, ball handling. Well, there are a lot of great shooters in the NBA, but uh, Steph Curry separates himself because he can create his own shot. J.J. Redick and uh, Kirk Corver and all those guys, they need to get set up. Even Clay Thompson, he, he can't create it the same. But ball handling and then shooting. And by the way, I think 
the worst thing we do as coaches is teach shooting. Is teach shooting? Teach, teaching shooting mm. is the worst thing we do as coaches. We do a poor job of it. Say more. <laughs> That's my experience. No, say more. Before we let you go, say more. What do you mean? I, I, well, I, I coached in China for two years. And when I was in China, I, I, I was working with these kids. And um, when you go to sh- what, what what is what is quick release to you? Uh, wherever you catch the ball on a pass to be able to get the ball up in the most appropriate the manner as quick as you can. Right. So what you, you try this with your kids, okay. start them shooting at the foul line then back them up to the Tell them it's gotta be one hand shot, back them up to the three point line, back them up another step back, keep backing them up till they get to the center line mm. and to shoot it one hand <laughs> as they start to shoot. You've seen that there's basically two shots, right? There's the lift shooter is the hidden shooter. <laughs> no hinge shooter will shoot like this once you get them out far enough because they can't get the ball to the hoop. It's all shoulders and arms. So what you'll do, you take a hinge shooter and back him up and back him up, back one hand shot, eventually he'll do this because he needs his legs. Right. He needs his legs. So this is what I believe. Now, I do not think we should teach shooting until you've taught them how to pass the basketball. Teach them the one-handed pass like that. Please record me here. Obviously, you can't see this in an audio form but this is a push pass coming from the right side just practicing pushing it forward creating that backspin and i think that's what he's getting at like that you take that thing and you rip that thing and then you rip it till you're so strong with it boom follow through backspin boom boom because that action is exactly the same as that Mm. teach him to pass teach him to get been right to, get, to, to follow through right and then and, and take them to a hoop and say to them don't shoot it stand them right like the right side of the hoop or the left side of the hoop in close real close and say pass it off that square pass it off that square mm. and look at the and then go in the gym and look at other kids and they're doing this <laughs> look at, if you got ten thousand hours you can become a good shooter it doesn't matter how you shoot the damn ball but if you don't have thousands and thousands of hours teach them to pass and then just go higher, and then just go higher, and then just go higher. I just got it. But there you go. Yeah. Anyhow, that's my theory. Love it. Ends it off with some free clinic. There you go, hoops journey listeners. <laughs> free clinic, yeah. I love it. Aaron's been and a I'll- pleasure. And Corbin, great to see you. Thanks for being with us. Amazing episode. All the best to you in, in your future endeavors, and uh, and stay well, Coach. Will do. Good luck. All right. Thanks so much to our listeners. We'll see you on the next episode.